0: Here's a natural substance. It's not toxic. It's part of our normal metabolism, but it is a kick ass psychedelic, no doubt about it. And so I think the agenda of those who want to prohibit it or restrict access, the reason they do is because it makes you have funny ideas.
1: Welcome to MTO Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Hello, beautiful visionaries. This is Lorna Liana, and welcome to the Entheonation Podcast, where we explore the intersection of psychedelic science, shamanism, and visionary culture. As the non-traditional use of ayahuasca has expanded worldwide, and more people from all walks of life discover ayahuasca, from hippies seeking God, to war veterans seeking healing, to entrepreneurs seeking to disrupt. I thought it would be beneficial to dive into what we know scientifically about how this ancient psychedelic brew actually works at a chemical level. Anecdotal stories abound on ayahuasca's healing properties. In parts of the Amazon, in addition to ceremonial consumption, ayahuasca is often used as a cure-all for everything, for colds and flus, to malaria, general malaise, lack of direction, and bad luck. On the web, you'll find stories of ayahuasca healing diabetes, cancer, Crohn's disease, PTSD, addiction, and depression. Unfortunately, ayahuasca is considered to be a controlled substance in many countries because it contains DMT, which is categorized as a Schedule One drug in the United States, and this makes any kind of clinical research extremely difficult. What scientific research has been conducted with ayahuasca shows promising results for the treatment of depression and PTSD. Two recent studies found that a single dose of ayahuasca rapidly reduced depressive symptoms in treatment-resistant patients, and clinical improvement was maintained for up to three weeks, which is apparently a big deal in the world of clinical psychology. However, sample sizes were very small, and short-term studies could definitely benefit from more follow-up. Science has a long way to go in order to catch up with what shamans, indigenous people, and long-term ayahuasca drinkers know in understanding the pharmacological mechanisms responsible for psychological healing. In today's fascinating episode, Dennis McKenna and I discuss the pharmacology of ayahuasca, what we know about its effects on the human body, why using ayahuasca with SSRI antidepressants is dangerous, as well as short-term studies on ayahuasca in the treatment of depression and what he considers ayahuasca's most promising therapeutic benefits to be. Before we hop into that conversation, I want to let you know that Entheonasian is seeking patrons so that we can keep producing high-quality, well-researched content about psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. I get a lot of requests from my audience to bring on celebrity guests like Graham Hancock, Joe Rogan, Aubrey Marcus, Paul Stamets, to name a few. One of the things that really helps with that is Nation's audience reach. The bigger our audience, the more likely that somebody who is extremely busy and famous will actually want to be on the show because they know that their 30 minutes of airtime will reach huge numbers of people. In order for Entheonation to expand our audience so we can bring amazing guests to you, we have to produce a lot of content, great content, and share that content using organic as well as paid traffic strategies. All of these things cost money. If you enjoy the Entheonation podcast, you can play an active role in the psychedelic renaissance simply by becoming our patron. Just go to patreon.com slash entheonation. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Entheonation and select your pledge level. Even a small pledge goes a long way. Plus, you'll get all kinds of premium rewards that are not available to the public. Don't forget to stick around for the end of the episode to discover what our Medicine Music for the Soul pick is for today. I'll give you a hint. It's a super trippy meditative track from the Visionary Music Collective called Liquid Bloom. And if you are a professional musician, I would love to consider featuring your music on the Entheonation podcast. Please send a link to your band camp song or album to Lorna at Entheonation.com and include a download link to your high-quality recordings. In your subject line, put Medicine Music for the Soul. Show notes and music for this episode can be found at entheonation.com/thirty. Are you ready to join the evolution? Sign up for our newsletter and receive our free guide to navigating visionary states, along with eight email lessons on how you can harness the power of your sacred visions. As a VIP member of Nation, you'll receive invitations to join life-transforming retreats and mind-expanding programs. Just go to Entheonation.com slash iTunes to join the tribe and receive your free gifts today. Hello, visionary people. This is Lorna Liana, and today I have a very special guest. His name is Dennis McKenna, and Dennis is an ethnopharmacologist, founding board member of Hefter Research Institute, and the assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. Dennis is the brother to the late Terrence McKenna and has studied plant hallucinogens for over 30 years with ayahuasca as his specialty of focus. Now, the topic of our conversation today is the pharmacology of ayahuasca. Specifically, we are going to find out how ayahuasca works in the body pharmacologically and what some of those effects, how those effects may have therapeutic benefits in modern Western medicine. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dennis. How are you? I'm well,
0: Lorna. I'm happy to be here. It's a great day. It's a little bit snowy out there, but uh, I'm in here, so it's all good.
1: (laughs) Great. So let's let's head on to our jungle talk, and we can imagine that we're in the tropical jungle. So first, I'd love to ask you, because I am not a scientific person at all. What exactly is pharmacology?
0: Well, pharmacology is the study of drugs, basically. Pharmaco, from the Latin, pharmacodrug or medicine. Uh, Pharmacology is the study of how drugs work, primarily. How they're absorbed and metabolized in the body, what targets they interact with in the body to do whatever it is they do. So it's, you know, drugs are chemicals, right? And the body processes chemicals in various ways and they have different actions. So broadly, pharmacology is the study of drugs and how they work.
1: Okay, so you know, for example, takes coffee. So we, we have the pharmacological effects of caffeine, how it makes us really alert and kind of jittery. Mm-hmm. so that would the effects of caffeine would be considered an aspect of pharmacology. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. Uh, the pharmacology of caffeine is very well understood. And yes, it's a central nervous system stimulant, mild stimulant, and it works on a set of receptors in the brain called adenosine receptors. Receptors in the brain are often named after the endogenous chemical that interacts with those receptors. Caffeine, in this case, happens to inhibit these adenosine receptors. And so adenosine receptors, when they're not inhibited, tend to, keep you kind of dampened down and so caffeine by blocking that action they actually kind of disinhibit those receptors and then you get all jacked up on caffeine right so and this is a good illustration of an element of pharmacology which is that you know a drug will bind to a receptor you know, somewhere in the body, it might be a brain receptor, or like a neurotransmitter, or it might be an enzyme somewhere, or you know, but it has a target, so in that sense, I'm using the word receptor quite quite broadly, and quite generically, whatever its target is, maybe it's an enzyme. We'll get into this more when we talk about ayahuasca. But caffeine, for example, binds to an adenosine receptor and it blocks. The, what it would normally do. So you tend to think of this, if a drug comes in and it hits the receptor, it it does something, it inhibits something. But as often as not, it blocks something from happening that normally would happen.
1: That's really interesting. So with ayahuasca then, what is happening? Is it binding to something? Is it blocking something? How, how exactly is ayahuasca interacting with our body and minds.
0: Okay, so this is a good illustration of exactly what we were talking about because ayahuasca is a combination of two plants, at least two plants, but always two plants, one of which contains dimethyltryptamine, right? Dimethyltryptamine or DMT is the psychedelic component of ayahuasca. It's the one that gives you the visionary kick, if you will. But the thing about DMT is it's a powerful psychedelic, but it's not orally active. And so you can eat DMT all day and nothing will happen because it is inactivated by enzymes in your guts called monoamine oxidases. And monoamine oxidases are a class of enzymes that evolutionarily, probably, are an adaptation to our omnivorous diet. What monoamine oxidases do is they degrade, they break down amines. Amines are nitrogen-containing compounds that contain, well, on the chemist's, NH2. They contain nitrogen. (laughs) I don't know how to explain it. They contain amine groups, amino, um, like as in amino acids. So in chemical nomenclature, amines are any compounds that contains an NH2 group, a nitrogen and two hydrogens, right? So these, I hope I'm not getting too complicated, but these enzymes basically... As omnivorous primates we consume a lot of amines in our diet, right? Some of them are toxic. Some of them are hallucinogenic like DMT. We have developed these monoamine oxidase inhibitors over the course of uh, monoamine oxidases over the course of evolutionary time to protect ourselves from these toxic amines in our diet, right? Mm, okay. Because some of them have very strong Uh, Effects on the heart. They could, you know, they raise blood pressure. Those are the so called pressor amines that interfere with your heart, and that can be dangerous. So, we've adapted to the amines in our diet by developing these internal detoxification mechanisms. Well, the same thing applies to DMT. A lot of plants contain DMT. We eat them we're not affected by them because that monoamine oxidase is taking care of them. That's detoxifying them. And obviously you can't go around high on DMT all the time, right? As as, as pleasurable as that in. might be, you're not going to get a lot
1: done, you know? Can't so, drive a car, so, right. can't have a conversation with your family. Can't have a conversation, can't
0: drive, can't open a can of tuna fish, can't, <laughs> can't do very much, you know, except, you know, be in that place. Well, so normally for ordinary functioning in the real world, we we don't want to be loaded on DMT all the time, right? But once in a while, we do. We want to take DMT and have the experience. Well, you know, uh, DMT, as I say, is inactivated by these monoamine oxidases in the stomach. So indigenous people have figured out other ways to take it. Some make snuffs out of it, and then you bypass that whole mechanism because you're not administering it orally. You're just going around that whole monoamine oxidase protective you know, defense system that's built into your physiology. But DMT, when it's taken that way, when it's taken as a snuff or indigenous cultures are smoked you can smoke the synthetic compound in a glass pipe in a crack pipe you can have a very strong but very short intense psychedelic experience so mao monoamine oxidase is not it's not exposed to mao so it sneaks in But the other way to do it is to take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, take something that will inactivate those enzymes, so that the DMT is protected in the gut. It's absorbed intact into the bloodstream, into the brain, and then it has the effect. But the effect is quite extended compared to DMT taken as a snuff because takes time to be absorbed and time to be metabolized so instead of a 10 or 15 minute experience you have maybe a 4 or 5 hour experience with DMT this is the secret of ayahuasca ayahuasca is made from two plants the liana the actual vine which is itself called ayahuasca just to confuse people because so is the brew itself but ayahuasca is the vine, the bark contains these alkaloids called beta-carbolines, and as a class of specifically harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine, all of these are very potent monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So that's what the vine is bringing to the table, contributing to the pharmacology of the brew. Then the admixture plants contain DMT. And so, though the leaves usually of the admixture plants, and there there are a number of them, but the chief ones are one is called chacruna, traditionally a Psychotria viridis is the scientific name of it. That contains high levels of DMT. Sometimes there's a different plant that's used instead, called Diplopteris cabarena. Basically, the pharmacology is the same because the leaf. Contains high levels of DMT. In combination, when you boil that up together with the bark uh, of the Banisteriopsis vine, it becomes an active brew. And the the beta car- the uh, MAO inhibitors inhibit the breakdown or prevent the breakdown of DMT, so then it becomes orally active. So. It's uh, ayahuasca is a very you know it's a good example of in I guess you could say indigenous wisdom in a certain way or indigenous intelligence because of out of eighty thousand different species in the Amazon, you know how did these primitive people quote unquote figure out that if you take this plant and you combine it with that plant. Out of all the possible plants you might have used, you will get a very highly active hallucinogenic brew.
1: Are you a spiritual seeker intrigued by the insight, healing, and transformation that visionary medicines offer? Do you feel called to work with sacred plant medicines, but don't know how to begin, let alone where to find a qualified shaman? Or perhaps you might have had a life-changing experience at an ayahuasca retreat center in Peru and are confused about how to integrate all your cosmic downloads with your day-to-day life back home. And what would really help with that journey is the support of a community of people who work with visionary medicines on a regular basis. If this sounds like you, check out Spiritual Evolution with Sacred Plant Medicines, an online program designed to help you receive the highest transformation. Just go to entheonation.com spiritual to view the course curriculum and receive a special 10% discount just for being a podcast listener. Simply apply the coupon code ENTHEO10, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-10, to redeem your 10% discount today. Yeah, when you look at it from a probability standpoint, it seems very, very slim that they could figure out that exact recipe, kind of like how the Indians came up with the recipe for um, the arrow poison, curare. But if you ask exactly. the Indians, they'll just tell you that the, the plants and the animals taught them. So it's a lot more straightforward
0: trial <laughs> and error. That's what they say about ayahuasca, too. If you ask them, they'll say, well, the plants taught us this. But this doesn't make sense from a Western point of view. You know, I mean, it's hard for us to, to make sense out of that because we tend to think, well, uh, in the first place, plants don't talk to you as a rule. But, of course, we know that they do. If you've had psychedelic experience, you know that they do. The tricky thing is, how did they learn about this combination before they actually put it to the test, if you know what I mean? So there's different speculation how they figured out exactly these are the species to use, this is how you prepare it, and so on. There is some evidence that they may have gotten this from watching animals. Rumor has it that uh, sometimes jaguars will feed on Banisteriopsis leaves, and uh, you know, you can see YouTube videos to this effect. I am pretty skeptical about that. I think that was a setup situation. But, you know, now we're talking more about the historical, you know, how did they figure out back in the day, whatever that was, about this combination. And it it looks like, you know, if if you try to figure out what the antiquity of ayahuasca is, how long has it been known, it's actually very hard to get a handle on it. But it's probably around, couple of thousand years ago mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's not so old compared to some of these other things
1: So you mentioned another plant that uh, is commonly used as an ayahuasca admixture What you mentioned the scientific name is there a uh, common name that you uh, that this yeah. plant is known by?
0: Yeah it's called Chagroponga or ah. sometimes panga, which is just another variation of the name Chagroponga it's actually it is also vine it's in the same family as banisteriopsis but it has a different chemistry so it and, it and the chemistry is that the leaves contain high levels of DMT and not much else you know not no other related alkaloids so both uh chilipanga and chacruna are Suitable admixture plants because they are they are clean sources of DMT. There aren't a lot of other alkaloids kind of clouding the thing. In in plants, normally the normal situation is if if a plant makes, say, an example, Banisteriopsis. They make beta carbolines, but they make a family of beta carbolines. They make several related compounds, and that's what you see in ayahuasca: harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine, and a bunch of secondary, less less concentrated, less abundant beta carbolines. But it's normally a mix of related compounds. So these plants, and and even in the tryptamine containing plants like the snuffs, for example that the Yanomami use made from a different plant, Verola, they contain DMT, but they'll also contain 5-methoxy DMT and they'll contain other tryptamines as well. So it's not a clean source of tryptamines. Chilipanga and Chacruna are pretty clean. You know, If you do analysis of them, you'll just get one peak and that peak is DMT. So it's an ideal admixture plant.
1: How do you, know, you spell ponga?
0: I'm not sure. ponga. I think
1: I've heard it uh Chaliponga, but I don't know if it's yeah, different.
0: Yeah, Chaliponga. I think that is a, what I know is the traditional name here is Chagroponga.
1: I see. Okay, great, great. Uh, have you noticed that there's a different experience between the chakruna versus the chagrapunga?
0: Uh, there are some differences, but it's basically on the pharmacology level. It's the it, the pharmacology is the same. You know, it's orally it's DMT rendered orally active by monoamine oxidase. Inhibitors, the beta carbolines, chalipanga or chagrapanga sometimes contains higher levels of DMT, so it's it's stronger, it's more intense. But now people are using there are many many sources of DMT that could be used as admixture plants. There are people are developing uh, ayahuasca analogs, for example, they use maybe Banisteriopsis bark, but they'll use the bark, the root bark of mimosa hostilis which is another natural source of DMT very high in DMT relatively pure it's not mucked up with other tryptamines but that is a plant that's never been used traditionally as an admixture to ayahuasca mm-hmm. you know the the new iowas experimenters western experimenters have You know, use this plant because it's hard to get uh, chakruna. It's hard to get chagropanga. Until recently, it was quite easy to get uh, mimosa hostilis because it actually has other uses. But now I think they've even cracked down on the importation of that one too. So.
1: Wow. Okay. There are
0: dozens of others, though plenty that they don't know about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It seems like DMT is a a very common naturally occurring compound in nature.
0: Extremely common.
1: So I find it very interesting that DMT would find it on the Schedule One list of uh, prohibited uh, substances.
0: Well. It's extremely common, and it is actually a neurotransmitter in the brain. It occurs not only in plants, but also in fungi and animals, including us. I mean, it it does occur in the brain. It occurs in other parts of our body, our lungs, adrenals, and so on. So it has a physiological function in us, in, in normal physiology. We're not sure exactly what that is but it's definitely there so but that hasn't stopped them from making it illegal you know making it a scheduled substance which kind of is a clue in some ways about you know what the real agenda is in a certain sense for this for this drug prohibition thing because here's a natural substance it's not toxic it's part of our normal metabolism But it is a kick-ass psychedelic, no doubt about it. And so, you know, I think the agenda of those who want to prohibit it or restrict access the reason they do is because it makes you have funny ideas. <laughs> and funny ideas are inherently dangerous to the, to the powers that be, you know. And so, so, really in some ways the restrictions and the prohibition of these psychedelics is, uh, is not to protect people from toxic substances is to protect people from dangerous ideas.
1: <laughs> from realizing uh, all yeah. the messaging that we've been bombarded with is utter bullshit and that, you know, we could potentially wake wise up to that. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> and we can't have that because, you know, uh, we can't have awake wise people because they don't make good consumer they're not Walker good beans. consumers they're not productive robots they're, you know, And so the sort of economic models, it's better if people are just compliant and, you know, when they're not producing, they're consuming and this is, you know, they're in their cubicles or they're in their home or whatever. But we're a long way from pharmacology here. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously
1: <Okay>. into politics. <laughs> yeah. So going back to pharmacology. So given, so you've got these MAO inhibitors, and that's what allows us to experience DMT for much longer periods of time than smoking it would allow. Let us experience. You know, the smoking it is, uh, you know, down to a few minutes, whereas with the MAO inhibitors, and we're experiencing the effects of the DMT visions for many, many hours. Four or five hours. Not many. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. How many? I don't know. I had one (laughs) ayahuasca training that was a full on nine or 10 hours. But, you know, it happens. (laughs) So then, what's going on with people that are on certain types of antidepressant medications? I believe uh, a certain class, and I don't, again, I'm not a chemist. um, SSRI?
0: Yes, yes. Yes, SSRIs which stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Okay. That's they should not be mixed with ayahuasca. Why uh, is that what's going on chemically? Well, what what's going on is that ayahuasca modulates, you know, serotonin. It DMT works on serotonin receptors, right? In in the brain it works on a class of a subtype of serotonin receptors called serotonin 2A receptors. That's how it does what it does. It it is what pharmacologists call an agonist at those receptors. In pharmacology, there's a sort of fundamental concept. Drugs are either agonists or antagonists. They either block the action of internal compound or the internal neurotransmitter or they sort of mimic it. And an agonist will sort of mimic it because molecularly it's different. It won't be exactly the same as the natural neurotransmitter. So DMT is an agonist at serotonin receptors. It activates those receptors. And then you have the visionary effects. Okay, so SSRIs, serotonin, we have to go back to fundamental... Pharmacology here, serotonin is released from at synapses, right? And it travels across the synaptic gap, across the synaptic cleft, and then there are receptors on the receiving neuron. These 5 HT2A receptors are on the surface of the receiving part. You probably, I wish I could draw pictures, (laughs) might be easier, but. So, they float across the synaptic cleft and they bind to these receptors on what's called the postsynaptic membrane, right? So, you got up here, you got your mushroom shaped thing. You've probably seen pictures, animation with neurotransmitters being released. I can send you videos of this. Uh-huh, sure, but yeah. Understand it much better. So, the neurotransmitter is released, it binds to the receptors, and then something has to happen with it right it has to either be debound you know removed from those receptors and degraded and there's monoamine oxidases in that receptor cleft that do that but the bulk of it is sucked back up into the presynaptic membrane and it's there's a there's a protein that does this a so-called transporter, a serotonin transporter protein that is kind of like a little vacuum cleaner, you know, after the neurotransmitter is released and it's done it, it's crossed the synapse, it's done its thing This these transporters, which are abundant you know, in the presynaptic membrane will essentially mop it all up, they'll re it back up and they'll repackage it into membrane bound vesicles, they're called membrane-bound packets essentially, and recycle it. What the serotonin reuptake inhibitors do is they block that reuptake transporter. They block that transporter. So the net effect is that more serotonin stays in the synapse, right? And so you have an antidepressant effect because depression is often linked to a, a lack of enough of this neurotransmitter serotonin. Are you with me so far?
1: So, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm trying to understand, okay, so why would you have this function in antidepressants? So basically, is the goal to keep as much serotonin as possible and not let it get, you know, taken up and absorbed into the rest of the brain? Exactly,
0: exactly. Keep as much serotonin as possible in that synaptic gap right okay and is that supposed to make you feel better it makes you feel better okay. because serotonin is the the feel-good chemical right okay. so so it makes you feel better but then if you take dmt and you all and that has the serotonin-like effect as well so if you already have a lot of serotonin in your synapses and you're piling another serotonin agonist on top of it you can get too much serotonin
1: I see. Uh, or okay. too
0: much serotonin-like effect. Uh-huh. And uh, you can... Uh, what happens? You, you can get a, a syndrome called the serotonin syndrome, <laughs> which is dangerous, which is it, it involves very high blood pressure, heart problems, disrupts your thermal regulation. So you can become, you know, you can get a high fever, essentially. Wow. It's not pleasant, it is usually not fatal, although it can be. It's extremely uncomfortable and dangerous if you happen to have pre-existing heart conditions or other things. So we just advise people to not, you know, to taper off those SSRIs before you take ayahuasca you know get them out of your system which is easier said than done because you're a lot of these newer generation of them you're not supposed to you can't just stop taking them right you have to taper off over a period of weeks but your system system should be clear of those drugs before you take ayahuasca and there's a list of them it's mostly the ssris but it's, you know, of which there are, you know, about 10 or 15 different kinds now. But then other drugs as well, such as Welbutrin. It's a kind of uh, atypical type antidepressant, sometimes used to treat smoking, to help people quit smoking. You should avoid that. You should order, you should avoid Tramadol. It's an analgesic, it's hits opiate receptors. But it also hits serotonin receptors, so you should avoid that. There's a whole list of things that you should not take, you know, with ayahuasca. But the SSRIs are the main culprits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're also uh, clinically used monoamine oxidase inhibitors. The thing about the MAO inhibitors in ayahuasca is they're reversible, so they have the effect. But then they go away, and after a few hours, they're metabolized, and the effect diminishes. But the clinical MAO inhibitors, which are not used very much anymore, they're an older generation of of drugs, but they are occasionally used for specific types of depression, and they have other applications. They're not used, but they are irreversible, meaning that they bind... To the monoamine oxidases enzymes uh, irreversibly. So, they, you, if you stop taking them, the effect, you know, it takes a couple of weeks for the MAO to regenerate. They basically inactivate all the MAO in your system. So, it takes some weeks to regenerate that, a couple of weeks. So, and with those irreversible MAO inhibitors, They were used in kind of a, they're an earlier generation of psychiatric drugs and mainly for depression. But one of the reasons that they've fallen out of favor is because they will potentially make you sensitive to a lot of the amines Remember, we were talking about amines, which occurred naturally in our diet. So you have to be very careful what you eat if you're on these MAO inhibitors. You can't eat any fermented cheeses. uh, You can't drink wine. You can't eat chocolate. Oh you, no! You know,
2: right? Exactly. I mean, right, right There's so a not reason not all. to eat, not to take them. Yeah, but it I, I like a it's the worst to
1: be my on my these life. antidepressants.
2: I
0: think I just find a bridge and jump off. Of it, you know? But, I know, but yeah, amines are quite widespread, and they're found in a lot of these cheeses and fermented foods and legumes. Any leguminous vegetable, they have these amines. So if you're on these irreversible MAO inhibitors, like uh, Uh, No, iproniazid, tracypramine, those are the two main ones, then you have to be extremely careful about what you eat. So they don't use those anymore. They, for that reason.
1: Hey there, visionary. We really need your help. Entheonation is on a mission to raise public awareness of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics and visionary plant medicines. We do this by creating consciousness-raising content, which we give to the public for free. And this costs money. That's why I'm asking you to play an active part in the psychedelic renaissance by supporting Entheonation on Patreon. Your patronage allows us to create more podcasts, interview more experts, research and write in-depth articles, produce videos, and offer unique educational products for visionaries just like you. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash entheonation, that's patreo ncom entheonation, and browse our mind-expanding rewards and choose your monthly pledge. Take a stand for cognitive liberty and spiritual freedom by becoming an entheonation patron today. That's a good thing. I mean, I can't even tell you how many cases and, you know, even people that I've known that have had such a hard time getting off their antidepressant drugs, like they bring it down and bring it down till they're on the bare minimum dose. And it's that last, you know, it's like going completely clean and off it that just uh, they're not able to. And it's it's a very, very, you know, terrible a thing to be addicted to. And, of course, that means that it may close the door to even experiencing ayahuasca because you're already, you know, on this other drug that, you know... Most
0: people can safely take ayahuasca if they're taking the minimal Mm -hmm. dose, if they've made an effort, if they're... I mean, I wouldn't tell anyone to do this. You know, I would say Mm -hmm. get off the ayahuasca, get off the SSRI. But... The fact is, if you can't, if you just can't, then if, if you get down to a minimal dose, you can safely take ayahuasca. But I, it's not something, I mean, that's kind of a nuanced aspect of it. And and the message you want to give to people is no, get off the mm-hmm. SSR. Now, part of it's interesting... Part of that is because of the three beta-carbolines in, in ayahuasca: in the banisteriopsis, harmine, tetrahydroharmine, and harmaline, which is actually just the least abundant. It's kind of a trace, but harmine and, tet- and uh, harmaline are MAO inhibitors, right? But tetrahydroharmine is a two-faced character. And it is a MAO inhibitor. It's a rather weak MAO inhibitor compared to the other two, but it's a rather potent SSRI. So it itself has that uptake inhibition effect, you know, which is another reason you don't want to combine it with pharmaceutical SSRIs because ayahuasca's got its own built-in SSRI in in the form of this alkaloid, which has a lot to do with the long-term therapeutic and antidepressant effects of ayahuasca. It's really an interesting story. This came out when we did this biomedical uh, study of ayahuasca with the UDV church in the 90s. One of the... Questions we had, we naively asked, sort of, was: Is there any biochemical difference? Is there any biochemical, you know, or physiological or neurological difference between long-term drinkers of ayahuasca and ordinary people or non-drinkers? I guess would that's be that's
1: fascinating. So that was a discover. question,
0: right? We didn't really know, but we thought it was a. We screened our subjects. After they would an ayahuasca, and after there had been time for it to all wash out, we measured uh, different receptors, knowing that it was not, you know, an acute effect of ayahuasca because we, you know, we'd given it a chance to wash out. What we found was in the drinkers, in the long-term ayahuasca users, the serotonin transporter in the presynaptic membranes—the the one that takes it back up the one that the SSRIs block, Mm -hmm. that receptor was increased in abundance, essentially. So, in a presynaptic membrane there you know these are proteins right embedded in the membrane so you can say well you know i mean there i don't know there are 100 proteins per square micron or what whatever you might want to think of it of of membrane suddenly that was increased by a factor of 10 or a hundred fold so these people actually have a very much more efficient system of serotonin transporters, they have more abundant serotonin transporters. So
1: what does that mean? Does that mean they have much more potential to be happier people? Or more balanced, more emotionally fulfilled, how does that translate to the
0: we 're not sure exactly what it means, but we have a we 're not sure what the mechanism of this would be. We have We're into speculation here, but it there is a clear chemical difference right the uh, drinkers are biochemically different than non drinkers <laughs> if they 're long term because they have this elevated abundance of the serotonin transporters we weren't even sure what it means meant when we made this finding but we started looking into the literature and it turns out there's a whole literature on various cognitive and psychological and neurological deficits that are associated with an abnormal, deficit in these transporters. In other words, abnormally low levels of these transporters is associated with alcoholism, certain kinds of alcoholism, alcoholism with violent tendencies. It's associated with uh, suicidal behavior, suicidal depression, even homicidal behavior, various kinds of behavioral dysfunctions are neurologically associated with low levels of these transporters. And interestingly, when we did this study with the UDV, you know, we also did psychological profiling of all these people. All of them, basically, when they joined the UDV, they were pretty dysfunctional people. A lot of them were serious alcoholics or drug addicts or, you know, involved in violence, domestic violence and all this sort of thing. They they came to the UDV. Usually a friend who was a member of the church would invite them to come to the ceremony. And, and the people it came because they were in a state of spiritual crisis. You know, they were in a life crisis. Their lives were not going well. They had problems associated with their use of alcohol and drugs and, and their involvement in criminality and so on. Almost all of them completely turned their lives around, you know, after they started taking ayahuasca and going to the church services regularly, they basically resolved all those issues. And, you know, they had profound experiences in their initial Experiences with ayahuasca and terrifying experiences that basically gave them a vision of, uh, you know, where they were going to end up if they didn't get straightened out. And they had, you know, these very sort of life lesson visionary uh, experiences that were presented to them. And, it, you know, it made them want to change. It made them want to change their lives. So we got that on the behavioral level, Then we see this neurochemical change in terms of their transporter profile. Then we go into the literature and say, oh, transporter deficits are associated with all kinds of problems. So the implication is that ayahuasca actually reverses uh, these deficits over time. So you get the psychological healing, which we've documented, and you get And now we can suggest a plausible mechanism that the, you know, in pharmacology there's a term called upregulation, upregulation and downregulation. So, the, the ayahuasca essentially upregulates the serotonin transporters, and this is associated with, uh, you know, resolution of these behavioral problems.
1: So, how long was this study going on for? What was the time period that you basically uh, researched and documented and tested these individuals? It
0: was about five weeks
1: in Manaus, Brazil. We did the study
0: at one of these, one of their temples in Manaus. We did various things. We conducted extensive, you know, psychiatrically structured interviews using a person, a psychiatrist who spoke Portuguese and could do the translation. We did that. We took various physiological measurements of the subjects, you know, when they took the ayahuasca we measured obvious things like heart rate and blood pressure and pupil dilation and and all that, but we took blood samples uh, as well. And then we froze those and took those back to the lab. And that's where we could look at the receptor modulation, the receptor response, because the platelets in the blood are commonly used in neuropharmacology as a peripheral marker of what's going on in the brain, right? So we were measuring serotonin transporters in the platelets. And that's kind of, you know, the inference is that a similar phenomenon was going on in the brain, a similar upregulation of these receptors.
1: So that's a pretty short period of time, five weeks. Have you ever gone back and tried like years later and and tested these individuals again?
0: We didn't do any follow-up. After after that time, most of them in our study were, you know, long term uh, members of the church. So all of the people in our study had been in the church at least ten years. Most of them had been in far long. Some had been in as long as forty years, drinking ayahuasca on an average of uh, once every two weeks and so there wasn't really a lot of follow up because these were people who were basically okay you know they were they were doing their their spiritual practice they were taking ayahuasca like in the so they these were happy well adjusted people <laughs> not a lot to follow up on they were you know i mean i suppose people do leave the church after you know people do not everybody stays in the church all of their lives Although often people do, they, you know, they find a great deal of spiritual uh, satisfaction in their pra- in their practice, and they tend to stay in the church.
1: Are there any other long-term studies of the effects of ayahuasca on over prolonged periods of consumption? There
0: is not a long-term. There are not long-term studies. That really look at the physiology here or the pharmacology of all this. We were kind of looking, you know, down at this basic molecular level. We wanted to know what, what's going on on the nuts and bolts level. What's it doing to the brain and so on? There have been studies on the, you know, long-term studies of different uh, groups, even in the states. You know kind of intentional communities that use ayahuasca, but those studies are mostly look at behavioral aspects I mean they give questionnaires and different so called psychometrics you know they they use different uh, types of screening instruments to interview people and say, well, you know, are you depressed? Are you on drugs? They're kind of like, you know, psychiatric life assessments. Mm -hmm. Those studies exist. Yeah. Not many, but a few. Okay. Well, it sounds
1: like there's definitely room for much more research. And this is a very fascinating conversation. So, I want to be mindful of time. What... In your research, like, you know, over these many years of studying these compounds and, you know, studying the effects on people, what do you see as some of the most promising benefits that, you know, ayahuasca and the long-term study of ayahuasca could possibly contribute to Western medicine?
0: It's PubMed. It's the uh, National Library of Medicine's biomedical database. So it's open to everyone. It's, you know, your taxes pay for this. And if you go to PubMed and you just put in ayahuasca, you can see what's been published about it. Quite a lot, actually, in the last couple of decades. Uh, You know, our study kind of got the ball rolling. Now there's over 100 studies, over 100 and almost 200 studies about different aspects of ayahuasca. So anyway, you can do your searching on that and it will, hopefully it will help with your background research
1: <laughs> so in your opinion what do you think the most promising attributes of ayahuasca are and and how could we benefit from them in western medicine
0: well i think i mean numerous ways i think that uh, ayahuasca is uh, I think that ayahuasca has the potential to transform psychiatry in effect because many people now in our dysfunctional world suffer from these long term problems like intractable depression, like PTSD, addictions, alcoholism, all of these things. And potentially, ayahuasca, you know, could be effective. There are not good treatments for a lot of these things, you know, medically speaking. So I think first, I think ayahuasca is an important medicine for developing new therapies that will actually be effective for these kinds of things. You no, know, and then secondarily, I think for the rest of us, who are maybe we don't have a diagnosis, but we all have issues, you know, everybody has issues for their spiritual life, I think that it's also good for us. I think it's beneficial for us to teach us essentially wisdom, to be better, more compassionate, kinder more intelligent, more less screwed up, you know, better people, actually, it teaches wisdom. And, and this is what the UDV will tell you. This is why people stay in the church, because in the church, they learn how to be a good person. And they learn that from the community. There's obviously a lot of community pressure, but they learn it primarily from the lessons that Mother Ayahuasca gives them. Mother Ayahuasca teaches you uh, how to be a good person. And so that's ultimately, that's the benefit of it. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much for your time here. I really enjoyed this conversation, Dennis. Please let us know how can we best stay in touch with you?
0: You can... Email me, uh, Dennis at Hefter.org is probably the easiest way to email me. And uh, I want to mention my book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, which you can order from Amazon.com. And you can also order from my website, which is called Just Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And actually, you know, I'm promoting the book, but on the other hand, you know, ayahuasca has been at the center of my life for probably 30 years. So if you want to learn about just read it from the standpoint of somebody who feels that ayahuasca has benefited them, I am that person. And so my story is kind of interesting in that respect, you know. And many people will say, you know, well, he's actually kind of an asshole and I can't see that Ayahuasca's done anything for him. But other people will say, well, is he kind of, a, kind of a nice guy and maybe Ayahuasca's helped him. So that, that's your judgment, you know, whatever. But I think people will enjoy reading, you know, that aspect. I mean, I've been sort of, It's been a very important uh, medicine for me as a subject of, uh, you know, professional curiosity as a scientist, but also a personal teacher as a person. And I bless the cosmos, the universe, whoever brought it into my life every day. It's just the most wonderful thing to have in one's life. If, If you treat it with respect, you can learn a lot from it.
1: All right. Thank you so much. And you have a beautiful day, Dennis. Okay,
0: Lorna, a pleasure talking to you and be in touch.
1: I just love talking to Dennis McKenna. I've seen him at three conferences already. And while he comes across as a reserved, almost awkward nerdy scientist, he really does come to life when speaking to the public and he communicates the science of psychedelics so clearly for the average person. To end this episode, I'm going to share with you an oldie but goodie. I got reintroduced to the super trippy down-tempo music of Liquid Bloom at Kopangon Island's Dome Acoustic Sauna, which is run by Dave, a deadhead from America. What I appreciate about Dave is that he really knows how to create a psychedelic chill-out experience. This track is called Healing Fire Breath, and it's from the album Heart of the Shamans. Enjoy.